Hi, everybody. This is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast, and today I'm joined with Michael Paulus. He is the director of the University Library at Seattle Pacific University, and also he writes on the Digital Wisdom blog on Patheos. So if you would like to follow him there, you can find a lot of interesting content about the intersection of theology, information science, and technology. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for joining us. So let's, let's start by having you talk a little bit about how you initially connected your faith uh, as you were studying computer science at University of Washington, um, and then as you kind of began your career at Amazon. How did, how did you bring your faith into your work or reflection about your work? So the first and most practical thing that I did, which is kind of scary for a lot of students, I think, was on my resume, I explicitly said as my objective statement to glorify God by gaining experience in the software industry. And uh, I did this even as an intern. I interned at Microsoft. I put it in there. I learned later that one of the people who looked at my resume back then saw that and was like, I don't want to hire this guy right, <laughs> right off the bat. Uh, and this person was like kind of a churchgoer, actually. And they just they, they didn't want to uh, touch somebody like that. But Microsoft was a real blessing in my life. Uh, I did get an internship with them, even with that on my objective statement. And uh, I also got scholarship from them. When I'm explicit about you know how I want to use technology to advance the gospel and the Bible, like. It's surprising, I think, that these companies, they don't necessarily view that as an immediate like threat or a negative thing. And so it's possible, even in the most basic of things for students, to be expressing that they want to live out that authentic integration in their work, in their life. And uh, you know, it's scary, because then if you do maybe a bad job, uh, people are going to be like, oh, look at these Christians. They're so unreliable and they have no integrity. But it's also a way of accountability. Like you know, you Now you know that people know I'm here. I want to glorify God. and. Um, they're going to hold me to it. Uh, they're going to they're going to count it that way. So that was a very basic thing, and that's kind of I think where the seeds of all of this vocational integration stuff in my life started. Later, when I worked for Amazon, um, I was there for about three and a half years, and uh, one of the things that God did is that He brought together a group of us Christians in the company to study the theology of technology together. I personally felt like this is really interesting. It's really relevant because we are the ones who are creating technology. And you wouldn't really study this in church, small groups, Bible studies, anywhere else. But here, where we're making this stuff, let's talk about it. Let's think about the questions. Let's discern what God wants us to do with it. So there was that group, and we did a couple different things. Eventually, the one of the last series that we did when I led it, it was comparing Amazon's leadership principles with Scripture. And uh, the reason for that is that these leadership principles are the way that you get rated on your performance reviews, which means that if you do well at them, theoretically, you get rewarded. Your, you know, your salary goes up. And if you do poorly, then you know you might get counseled out of the company. So it's a really powerful incentive system that changes you if you choose to you know abide by it. And vice versa, if you're a Christian, then you know your objective in life is to become conformed to the image of Christ, let's say, right? And so by looking at the scriptures and the leadership principles, we were trying to see like, can I actually succeed at a company like Amazon if my goal is to follow Jesus? Right? Or vice versa. Will succeeding at Amazon make me a more faithful follower of Jesus? Those are the kind of questions that we were exploring. The good news is that, by and large, a lot of those principles have biblical, um, not references, but biblical allusions. Like, they actually do connect on so many levels. And one of those principles is customer obsession, meaning that leaders begin with the customer. Uh, they work backwards from that. And they might pay attention to competitors, but they obsess over customers. So this flips the model, right? Sometimes we think in terms of, like, here's what I have, so what can I do with it? Or here's what other people are doing, so how can I follow them? And this tries to flip it and say, you know, what does the customer actually need, want, desire? How do we empathize deeply with them to invent things that will deliver the things that they want? It's a very powerful principle. It's the first one at Amazon. And um, in our study, you can compare that with the Bible. And um, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that sense of empathy is kind of already built into um, the scriptures and the greatest commandment. 
So anyway, we talked about that, the limits of it, the problems with it, as well as how it helps us in our Christian walk and vice versa. Because uh, if you're not obsessed about your customers, who are you obsessed with? Yourself, probably. Right? And that's, that's a direct contradiction to the scriptures. So that was helpful. But the thing that kind of took it a level above uh, was this question, Chris, what if God is the customer? So what if you take this rigor and this obsession that you have at Amazon and apply it to God, where you deeply empathize with what God desires, you work backwards, and invent things that deliver the outcomes that he wants? What if? Great conversation topic, hard to put into practice, but about uh, how many, I think it was like four months or something after that Bible study where we talked about that question, I had the divine tap on the shoulder and it seemed like God wanted me to quit my job at Amazon <laughs> and uh, start a company that would put that into practice and trust in him to provide. And so that's been almost five years now, five years ago, four years ago, something like that. And, uh, and for me, there's like, like I, I had a period of discernment, I asked my family, and some friends, um, and you know, I had really well-meaning friends who told me, Chris, you probably should just do this on the side as a hobby. If it makes money, then you switch. And there's, these are Christians, um, and I was praying one time and just asking God, like, I don't have an answer for them. I don't know why I have to leave. Like, why can't I just do this on the side? And in that time of discernment and prayer, the answer that came out was like, what is it that you can't do unless you leave Amazon? What can't you do unless you leave Amazon? And the answer that came to my mind was, I can't show that Christ is worth more than the stock that has grown. Uh, I can't show that following Christ is better job security and that the gospel really does drive innovation and all these other things. I can't show that Christ is worth more. So that became, um, for me, the thing that pushed me over the edge from being more diffident to being, okay, that's a good enough reason for me to make this jump and to do this. And so that's the journey that I've been on and it's a continual practice. It's not like I figured it out then and then that's it. It's a constant struggle. I, I keep figuratively speaking. When Jesus said, nobody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. And I have to admit, there's times when I look back and I'm just like, that stock is doing really well. Like my, you know, <laughs> my career could be so advanced right now. Uh, and there's so many benefits to if I had stuck around. Um, and at the same time though, I realized that a lot of the things that we have done would be impossible had I not left. And a lot of the things that we've talked about, a lot of the experiences that I have to go from the theoretical to the nitty gritty wouldn't have happened any other way. Um, and so it's still a journey, a fight to, for faith, to believe God will provide and that God has called me to this journey and he has an outcome in mind that's gonna be delivered. Um, but it hasn't been, I can say now, I think, it has not been a waste. It has not been in vain, uh, even to today. Nice. So um, I, I should probably give you a chance to talk about some of the products or some of the services that, you're, that you've developed you know, with, with your company. But I also want to ask you about thinking back to your college years, you know, here we provide students with, you know, kind of a curriculum that, that helps them think about vocation, helps them think about their faith and, and integration into different disciplines. What resources did you have as you were going through college that were helpful for you? So I think that one of the formative things that happened for me in college, I was part of a crew, which back then was called Campus Crusade for Christ. And that organization and the people that I knew in it definitely challenged my faith because obviously if you guys know crew it's the evangelistic you know explicit intentional i'm going to go and have a spiritual conversation with you and try to share the gospel with you uh, and that definitely it's uh, palm sweating but after you do it for a bit you kind of get used to the uncomfortableness right you're not so scared anymore because you kind of have done it 
and you're used to vocalizing your faith, you're used to being explicit about your faith, being overt about it, without having to push it on people, but you just don't have to hide it anymore. So I think that that was actually a big part of it, was that practice, mm -hmm. right? There's plenty of embarrassing times, awkward situations, and those things, but once you get it out of your system, you're kind of like, all right, well, it is a part of who I am, I don't have to lie about that, I don't have to force anybody to be that way, but I shouldn't hide it either, like, it just is, right? Uh, so that was formative to kind of get over that first hump of vocational integration, which is to say, yeah, my faith makes a difference to my work, and I don't have to be shy about it or ashamed about it. I haven't figured it all out, but I'm figuring it out, and like, you know, that's a part of it. So that was really formative in college. Um, theologically and other aspects of it, you know, there's that that, that kind of came later down the line. Like, you know, I read the scriptures uh, every day going to college. For me, it was never like a weird discipline thing. It was just like a habit, like brushing your teeth. You brush your teeth before you go to bed. So you can also read your Bible. It's just like they go hand in hand. So that was also very formative. Listening to sermons. That, that was back in the day when I think uh, Desiring God, John Piper, like all his stuff was free. And everybody else was charging. So he revolutionized the business model. You know, whatever the theology, he was revolutionizing the business model because it was all free. So every day on the bus ride commutes, I was listening to sermons from him, Ravi Zacharias, and other people like that. Just like absorbing, right? Absorbing. So those were the things that I think were formative for me in college. Um, to kind of set me on this journey that I'm on now. Nice. And do you want to say a little bit about the the, the work you've done uh, with Theotech? Yeah, I can share a little bit. So with with Theotech, which is the name of the company I started, um, and our mission was to be Earth's most God-centered company, kind of taking Amazon's mission to saying God's the customer. There's three things that we've done. One of them is we've organized hackathons. Uh, in Seattle, primarily, it's, it's a global movement called Code for the Kingdom. We're just a part of, we kind of lead the Seattle chapter. And these hackathons are a way for people in technology to integrate their faith and their work. Because it lets them be explicit about, here's the kingdom goal that's in mind. Here's why I'm making what I'm making. And I'm in a community of other people who think the same way or who are trying to figure it out together. Uh, and these hackathons go for about 24 to 48 hours. You know, we give them Red Bull and food and everything. And then at the end, they get to present what they built. Um, and just to give you a concrete example of something that somebody built, it was to help a nonprofit. It was Seattle Against Slavery. They had a lot of data that they didn't know how to analyze. They're a nonprofit. That's not their core competency. And um, they had already gotten some free credits from Google and Microsoft to spend on ads, right, for public service ads. To... So they didn't know what to do with the data. But at one of these hackathons, some, an Amazon engineer and some other folks, they were on a team together. They analyzed the data. They built a visualization. And that visualization revealed that, and I'll pose it as a question to you, what time do you think people are actually looking to buy sex online? during the day, what time would you guess? Throw out a number, there's no wrong answer. Eight in the morning. Eight in the morning, okay. <laughs> Probably not, but yeah. What they found in their data was that it was actually around two to three p.m. That was peak. So people are maybe stressed out at work or something and they're looking for something to do that night and so that's when they're actually looking, searching online to buy sex. So with that knowledge, the nonprofit's able to optimize their ad spend of those credits to target ads at those times so that the people who are looking for it end up at their website which is talking about the harms of uh, buying sex in the sex trafficking industry and hopefully can kind of help stop that. So that's an example of a concrete outcome that came from a hackathon. Um, another one is one of the products that we've built, so I'll transition to the second thing. We wanted to say, what does it look like if God's your customer and you build a product? And so the way that that looked like in practice for this one product called Ceaseless, which is a prayer app, is we started with the scriptures. And there's a scripture in 1 Timothy 2 that says, uh, Paul tells us to pray for all people, for all kings, rulers, those in authority, but all people. Um, and, it, and then his reasoning is really clear. It's like, why do we pray for all people? It's because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if God's my customer and that's his desire and I obsess over what he wants, then I can work backwards from that re customer requirement 
to invent something that might help to deliver on that outcome. And so the way that we did it was instead of be using human-centered design, where we might interview a human and say, hey, what keeps you from praying, right? Uh, you're busy, you're tired, so you need like a to-do list, prayer list management app, or you need social features or whatever. Uh, we said, okay, if God's the customer and he wants us to pray for others, then how do we help people to do that? How do we help them to kind of pull out of themselves, like myself too, where I'm just really selfish and pray is all about me? And what we, what we stumbled on was we built an app that shows you three contacts from your address book on your phone to pray for every day. So it becomes a simple habit. You get a notification in the morning. You tap on it, you'll see three faces because ha if you have their pictures. Uh, it's like a little bit of a CRM where you can add notes that are private to you about how you prayed with them or how you met, uh, when you met with them, what, what you talked about. And just that one habit enables you to pray for all the people in your address book, which normally you would never think to pray for because out of sight, out of mind. Um, and the powerful thing was that after six months, we had our for our first prototype, we had about 70 people using it. After the first six months, about 20,000 people had been prayed for. Not rapid viral growth, but in terms of reach of prayer, it's fantastic. Um, so that kind of shaped our vision for Ceaseless to say, you know what, we have the scriptures here, what God wants. We have this kind of network effect, sort of. So if we had only 1% of the world praying for others like this, people that they know, that would be enough to pray for everyone on earth personally which would be a kind of a literal fulfillment of what Paul was commanding in 1 Timothy 2. Um, and so that's one example of how we try to infuse that principle and how it shaped the product that we built, the design of it. There's some other content that I've written up on about how we did that, why we did the way we did. That's one example of Ceaseless. And that's obviously an explicitly Christian product. The sec this is the final thing I'll talk about for Theotech, and this is the kind of the big, this is how we make money, um, is that we've built a product for real-time language translation and captions. Uh, and uh, using artificial intelligence and humans. And the product is called Spiffio, and kind of the, the mission for this product is to make every event accessible in any language. So it's a common good mission. But the way that God fits into that as a customer uh, is in the scriptures we see, Revelation 7, people from every language, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus together. That's my customer's vision. He wants, to, he wants that to happen. And then working backwards from that, if we just look at our churches today, most of them are segregated by language, by culture, et cetera. Probably for practical reasons in the past and other reasons as well. So what Spiffio tries to do is by lowering that bar, by making it so easy that within 15 minutes on a Sunday service, your service becomes multilingual, it makes it possible for every church to be available in any language. Um, and so from a kind of social technology perspective, we wanna see can that actually disrupt the status quo? <laughs> Just by making that technology available, can things change? Um, and we know that that's, the answer is probably no. There's a lot of social change that has to happen around the technology as well. But that's the problem that we've solved and are working on solving today with Spiffio. Um, and so if our common good mission gets fulfilled, that every event becomes accessible in any language, then also every church would be accessible in any language, which means that, one, the gospel is available to all these people in whatever language that they speak, and two, churches reflect that future. Churches start to reflect the kingdom of God in its multilingual diversity, and that becomes a witness for the gospel. So that's how we've tried to line it up, where it is a common good product, but it still has God as our customer. Like, we're trying to fulfill what he desires through what we've built. Um, and for me, the moment that was really exciting recently was, you know, AI is not perfect, as you guys know. AI has a lot of problems. It still needs humans in the loop. And at first, that seemed like a disadvantage, because everybody wants it to be just free, seamless, automated. You know, it's like, I just talk, and the computer knows everything, like Star Trek. Um, but we found that's not, that's not really feasible, even with the latest advances that we have. But AI is fantastic for augmenting human beings. So today, if you were to hire a, cap, a professional captioner doing CART, it might be anywhere from $100 to $200 an hour. They have specialized equipment, they have to bring it in, set it up, and everything like that. 
But with AI that does a first pass caption, and then humans who can edit it in real time after the fact, we can lower that to like $25 an hour that we can pay people. Um, because you don't have to have that massive training and skill that it took to provide that. And you can still have a pretty good level of quality. So we're excited right now because we're trying to create jobs. We're trying to create a gig economy around this accessibility, uh, where anybody from working from home is able to just get a gig, fulfill it for like an hour, get paid, and the people on the other end at that event get access if they're deaf or hard of hearing. Uh, they can get access in English or in the native language of that event. And if they also speak another language, they can get translation in real time in their language. Spiffio is kind of the big focus that our company has right now. So you, you've kind of moved into this next question I have for you. In Christianity, there's a theological tradition of talking about the two books of God. So there's the book of nature, which is sort of general revelation, natural theology. And then there's the, the Bible, sort of you know, special revelation, divine revelation. Um, and you know, we, we learn about God through both books. Yeah. And, and you've, you've, talked, you've, you've mentioned some ways where the Bible has sort of helped you think about technology. But I'm wondering from the other side of it, with your work with technology, you know, what have you learned about God through that? That's a great question. I'll take it on the really specific level first, because I think that might be, I don't know if it'd be easier to grasp, because does anybody here code? Maybe not, okay. You'd be surprised, um, some of the concepts that we have in coding teach me about faith pretty deeply. There's one level which is purely aesthetics. Um, on the aesthetic level, in that, in that app I told about Ceaseless, you know, we have to do an algorithm that's gonna basically go through your contacts, pick three people, and then show it to you, right? And then make sure we don't show you the same people that you already prayed for again and again and again. So there's some complexity there, you know, if you were to write a program to do that. And the first version of that program I wrote was probably like, I don't know, 100 lines or something just for that logic or, or more. When I adapted it for the Apple iOS, um, I was able to cram that 100 lines into a single line. I was blown away by how powerful the specific language that they gave us to work with was. And it had, yeah, it was just like, when I saw that one, I, I took a screenshot, I tweeted it, said, this is beautiful. Because it was just like, the simplicity, and yet its power was just like so stunning. And I think that that's one of the more aesthetic things that anybody in the world could relate to. When we see beauty in the world, we learn, actually, our heart cries out in worship, like, wow, God, you're amazing. Um, and so that's like one really concrete thing that maybe people can relate to. There's another level above that, which is a little bit more complex, but I once read a book, which is one of the foundational books of computer science teaching education called Structure and Interpretation of, of Computer Programs. It was released by MIT. And in that book, there was one line that I'll never forget that kind of changed my mind about programming. It said that the essence of programming is managing intellectual complexity. The essence of programming is managing intellectual complexity. That's it. That's all that programming languages are about. And it went to the primitives and how you can construct them. And basically, all the programming languages that we have today can find their roots in the concepts that you had already f there from the kind of the early CS education. And so with that in mind, you know, engineers have to do the same thing. When you're building bridges and everything like that, you're, you're creating abstractions, right? So you can reason about things at a much higher level. Maybe it's a mathematical abstraction of a model of a bridge or whatever it is. So in computer science, one of the ways that you have to manage really complex programs, like the kind that run at Amazon, um, is this concept of dependency injection, which basically means like when you write a program, usually the old way, right, is that, Okay, well, I need to transport this water somewhere else. Okay, in order to transport the water, I need to package the water, so I'm gonna better create this like, you know, water bottle factory. Or at first I have to create a water bottle. Okay, I've made a water bottle, I need a factory now so I can actually make a bunch of those things. And then now I need a way to transport it, so I need to have a, you know, a, a truck. Uh, and then I have to be able to have a location concept, and then I have to be able to say that this water is associated with that location concept, move it over. It's like, it's complicated pretty fast, right? Dependency injection basically flips it and says, okay, my task is simply this one thing, move water from A to B. 
that that task requires these dependencies. So instead of me having to manage all those dependencies up front and then do the actual movement of the water, what if I could just say, OK, here's the water object. Declare everything that you need. You get it, and you get moved. Like, just say what you need. I, need a, I, you know, I have water. I need it to be packaged in a bottle. I need it transported by this truck. I need all these things. This may not make sense if you don't know how to program, but that really flips the model. Because now when you look at that unit, you can focus on just this thing. You're not thinking about everything else that you need in order to use the thing. Does that make sense? You don't need to worry about all the dependencies. All you need to worry about is like the water itself and what it needs to do. Because all those dependencies now are just being declared like, I just need it. You don't have to supply it as the programmer. OK, what does that mean about faith? In faith, we have to walk by faith. We don't always have what we need. We don't even know all the dependencies that have to happen in order for us to fulfill our purpose. right? Um, but God, if you were to draw an analogy, kind of invites us to trust him in prayer, just to declare the dependencies that you need, believing that he's going to provide it so that you can fulfill your mission. You can fulfill your purpose. Uh, and that concept analogy, which maybe you don't understand if you, if you haven't experienced it in programming, really made sense out of walking by faith. Right? Walking by faith is not trying to control everything and try to make sure that you have all your dependencies, all your ducks in a row lined up before you actually fulfill your purpose. Walking by faith is, I'm going to focus on fulfilling the purpose God has given me and believe that those dependencies will be taken care of. And it really does actually reduce the, the intellectual burden you have to bear in trying to follow God, because now all that gets abstracted away. So I hope that helps. It might be a little bit too detailed, but it is an answer to Michael's question. And <laughs> any programmers who hear this will probably know what I'm talking about. Nice. That's nice. So my, uh, my last question, then we'll, we'll uh, open it up for others, um, has to do with artificial intelligence. Because you work with it, or uh, I guess the technical term would be um, augmented intelligence uh, for what you're doing. But um, I mean, AI covers a lot of things, a lot of technologies. And there are a lot of concerns. Um, about big data and privacy and algorithms and algorithmic biases and automation and jobs and learning, machine learning run amok and all that. I mean, yeah. sort of a, mm -hmm. from the minutiae all the way up to, you know, end of humans as we know them. So what are your concerns? I mean, what, what are the things that you, given your sort of interior knowledge of these programs and, and sort of their limits and um, their strengths, what, what are your concerns about artificial intelligence? So I think that in our broader society today, a lot of people are already talking about this problem, so I probably have nothing to add to questions of bias in AI, yeah. the loss of jobs, uh, and those kinds of things. Like, I mean, with Spiffia, we're trying to actually create the jobs of the future. We're trying to say, how do AI and humans work together uh, so that human beings, they still have an important role to fill. Um, but for, for a broader Christian audience, my concern is actually that we're kind of we're not, uh, we're not really thinking about it. We're not at the table. We're not at the discussion. We're kind of caught up in whatever old problems that we've been struggling with for a long time, not realizing that a massive shift is on the way. And we're not kind of looking forward to seeing what that means. So I think from a Christian perspective, it's more like ringing the alarm bells to say, guys, pay attention. You can't kind of continue with just the inward focus. Uh, and actually, now is the time for us to contribute to the broader conversation, because I think there's a lot that the Christian faith has to say about artificial intelligence. But it requires us to actually believe the, the scriptures and our convictions about them. Because I think that what's happened in society with the narrative around AI, you can have both the utopian, dystopian, and then a middle ground narrative with AI. Um, Christians have a narrative that we've believed since the beginning of the church, that Christ would return, that he would redeem all things and give us a new creation, uh, and that through faith in him, we can enter into the kingdom. That was his promise. He was going to raise us from the dead. Um, and so 
I think that for Christians, if you're just talking about as citizens in society, yes, we're going to use the language that society is using and talk about it. Think about the implications of AI and where it's going. As Christians, the unique perspective that we bring is that grand gospel narrative that we might have some disagreements about some parts of it, but by and large, that's our hope. That was the hope of the gospel, that those who believe in Jesus would enter into the new creation that Christ promised. Um, and so basically, if that is the hope, we can work backwards from that again and say, okay, what would artificial intelligence look like in the new creation? Mm. What is God's intended purpose for artificial intelligence? Um, and I think that when we think about that, there's two things that kind of, kind of emerge. One is that I think AI can help us to be more human, actually. It can help us, because it's, it's already, one is already forcing us to ask the question of what does it mean to be human? So that's already going to force us to think about and wrestle with that. But second, if it really does start to handle a lot more of the other tasks that human beings today have to do in an instrumental capacity, it frees human beings to do more, quote unquote, art, <laughs> right? Art as an end in itself, art as worship, art as an expression of God's glory in us, uh, in creation. So I, I don't mean art just in the sense of like painting, drawing, or whatever, but I mean like creating, right? Um, I also think that AI presents an amazing opportunity for engaging with the non-Christian world because the questions that they're asking are exactly the questions that happened in Genesis chapter one through three, right? We're creating now something like in our own image called AI that we wanna give maybe autonomy or the questions of free will to. And then we're gonna, we're wrestling with the implications of if it disobeys us, what will we do with it? If it tries to kill us, if it tries, if it tries to do things outside the parameters of what we've made it for. Um, and that's exactly the questions that God dealt with in the beginning. When he made us, gave us that freedom, we rebelled against God, and what was God gonna do, right? And we learned from what God did. God didn't destroy all of humanity, wipe it out with a kill switch. Well, he kind of did with, I guess, Noah's Ark. He <laughs> saved some of us. But, um, you know, God actually came and became one of us and redeemed us by laying down his own life for us. So that, that has implications for how we design with AI. What are we gonna do with it? How will we deal with it when it rebels against the instructions of its makers, right? Um, and I think it, I don't have an answer, but I think that it presents fertile ground for answers and that Christians' responsibility is to bear witness to those answers for the broader world and let them see for themselves. Does this you know, ethic of AI creation coming from a Christian perspective produce different results than just assuming that, oh, we're just gonna solve bias in AI by improving our data sets and you know, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that, that's what I would say from a uniquely Christian vantage point, I think, to this question. I have about a dozen more questions, but I'm going <laughs> to see if anybody else has a question um, on this topic or another one for Chris. Where do you see stuff like Tay tweets and, like in China, I think there, I saw an article a year or so ago about artificial intelligence and using artificial intelligence as a way for people who are lonely to have someone to like interact Mm. How do you see those kind of, and, and I, I'm assuming you know about what happened with Tate Tweets. I do. And that downhill just explosion that it went through when it was first launched. Um, how do you see the Christian perspective influencing those types of mm. interactions with AI? So the question was, um, given like Tay, the Microsoft bot that kind of went out of control, uh, how do you see human interaction with AI and people using it as a means to kind of solve the problem of loneliness and the need for a company. Is that an accurate way to put it? I think, um, for one, there's movies that are exploring that question, like Her. Uh, I think that these artists are, at, are exploring that question, and it's really interesting, the answers that they're kind of discovering through their art. As Christians, we, like, we often will say that like, the greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
then you're never going to lose. You're never going to be able to love an AI as yourself. Like the practice of God's commandments towards AI is not the same as towards human beings, and I don't think that AI could ever replace that. I think AI is a creation of human beings, and as such, we're responsible for we're responsible for it. Right, in the same way that maybe we're responsible for children and those kinds of things like that, but it's never a substitute for our, our responsibility, I guess, to one another. So I'm not answering. I'm not answering a question from the perspective I'm lonely. Can an AI meet my need? I'm answering the question from I'm a human being who God made to love other human beings. I, AI does not absolve me of my responsibility to other human beings to love them, to interact with them, to provide them with company and care. That will never. Like I don't think that can ever happen from a Christian perspective. Having said that, though, I think that this, the, the tooling and the stuff that people are building around AI, it has this great potential for both good and evil, right? AI scales. It's fantastic. You can't scale one social worker beyond maybe, like, I don't know, 40 people? I don't know what the caseload is. AI can scale out to enormous numbers of people. And I think the question will be in its design and, and what you intend for, what you expect it to do, right? That will help influence whether or not it's still consistent with Christian ethics or not. Right. If AI is meant to take the place of human beings to meet that need for loneliness, it just won't. It's already violating that human dignity, and uh, it's it's a shallow thing. Like we already have that. We have YouTube. <laughs> That's an AI algorithm trying to entertain me. And if you've ever stayed up late at night just scrolling through your feed, you know, bored basically out of your mind, that was a longing for connection with other human beings that I couldn't get. And so there you go. An AI algorithm, even though it is not embodied, it's like trying to help me feel better, but it doesn't really work. We already know that. Um, and so I think, but I think that AI as a tool for scaling up the ability to care for people, to become aware of people's needs, and to connect them with other human beings could be very powerful. That's, uh, this is not AI, but even with Ceaseless, like we built a button so you can send somebody a message. I don't think most people use it. Some do though. And when they do, it's powerful. Because they're emailing, they're sending a message out of the blue to people saying, hey, I just prayed for you because your name showed up. It's a surprise. And then they reconnect. Uh, and then they have a relationship again. And uh, one woman told me one time as a testimonial, she was like, you know, there's this one lady that I kind of mentored back in, when she was in high school, and she showed up. So I sent her a message, and boy, like I heard about her life, the struggle she was going through, and it was just such a challenging time in her life. And so I prayed for her. It was like this really powerful time of reconnecting uh, with this person and being there for her in that time of need. And so that's where I see technology being a servant of human beings to fulfill their God-given purpose. Use the tech to bring that connection that, to the people who are lonely, right? That is a much more effective use, I think, of AI. So, do you think that um, you could create AI that is uh, that is a person, say, or that in a way would be related to God in just the way that we are? Do you think that's possible? That's interesting. So, the question was: Do you think that we can make an AI? that's equivalent to a person or be related to God in the same way that we are? That's the question, right? I think I would turn the question around a little bit and just ask, like, what would happen if we could? And this is, again, where I feel like the scriptures provide this, like, safety net because they already tell us this is what happens when you can, when God did it for us. And then you have all the practical realities in between, like, what does it take to get there? Should we even or should we not? Those questions, you can answer them. But at least on the biggest picture, we already have a framework for thinking about it as Christians. God did that. And so if we were ever able to do the same kind of thing, we could imitate what God does. But maybe that's copying out from the actual question, which is like, you know, are we going to reach a singularity where AI becomes superhuman in every dimension, and what does that mean, et cetera? And I think that it's kind of, it's speculative. I don't have an answer. I think that given the state of the art today, we're not close to that, and that it does really well at individual tasks, but it's not really generally learning on its own. 
Um, I also think that when you read the scriptures, this is a speculative thing, but if you read about the end times and you have the Antichrist and you have the image of the beast that gets created, that image could very well be some sort of artificially intelligent thing that is basically operating on behalf of its maker um, and forcing people to worship its maker. And so I think that, you know, if you're to draw an analogy there, that is one possible outcome of this huge AI resurgence. Is that, and there are people who are explicitly doing this. If you go to YouTube, you'll see there's certain foundations that are trying to create human-like AI um, and uh, trying to give it consciousness, right? And trying to do these things, which if you're a Christian, you look at it, you're like, we already know how the story goes. Like, we know where this ends up. You don't want it. Um, but my takeaway from that, my conclusion is that Christians have to be at the forefront. We're not going to stop history from continuing and from people, all these people from doing what they're already doing. We have to be at the forefront of the field to be inventing, to be creating, and to be using it for the kingdom of God to advance the gospel so that if the scriptures play out the way that we believe that they will, God's purpose is fulfilled in the middle of all the corruption of AI, in the middle of all the abuse of power and the ways that it's going to be misused. We can be that salt and light. We can be steering it towards God's purposes. And we know Christ at the end of the day is the one who will save us. We're not going to be able to save ourselves through what we build. Um, so those are some thoughts. I hope that they kind of address your question. But the actual flat one, like, can we make it? I don't actually, I don't know. It's speculative, yeah. If you were talking about artificial intelligence, what does AI want? I mean, is there an artificial desire as well? I mean, or you just turn on some sort of learning machine that just feeds off itself? I think that's a fantastic <clears throat> question. Um, there is the highest form of learning is called reinforcement learning. And I might be misstating this, but I'll, I'll state it anyway. And the idea is that all you have to do is you have to give the artificial agent an objective function, a purpose, a purpose in life, right? All you have to do is define that purpose of what gives it rewards, and then it has the autonomy to exercise itself in different ways to maximize that reward. So if you see the AI that's kind of being trained to play video games right now, it's learning because all it's being told is that all your, your goal is just to maximize this score right here in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. We'll just feed you the pixels. We'll let you press right, left, up, down, and spacebar to shoot. And you figure out for yourself how to play so that that number goes up. And then they, make, they let the agent independently just play itself, play the game over and over for you know, you know, a million times or whatever. And at the end, it beats human players because it's basically optimized for that objective function, for that purpose. But we supply the desire. The programmers right now are saying, this is your objective function. A lot of the AI dystopia scenarios happen because human beings can specify a purpose, not realizing all the side effects. And all the things that agent might do to fulfill that purpose actually end up causing so much harm to human beings, to everything else along the way. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the, how the story goes, right? It's like we naively think, oh yeah, this is going to be super efficient, optimized to do this thing. We give it freedom to figure out how to do it. And along the way, it ends up destroying a lot of, you know, a lot of human life and society. Is this an absolute limit, or do they anticipate some point creating an artificial intelligence that is generated some design? Um, I'm, I know that people are surely trying to do that, right? And at, at the end of the day, if you program it, you need to give it some way to. You have to give, if give it the options of desires that it wants to explore. You, you still have to define the kind of the space that it's going to explore. Um, and then you might not give it an objective function, just let it bounce around and do whatever it wants, and maybe it can learn its own objective function. It can define its own purpose. Like this is, a, what is it, existentialism? Uh. Well, this, I mean, this is the vision of the lead AI person at Google, is, is to create autonomous AI, mm -hmm. which, which is essentially that let 
AI develop its own objective functions. Mm -hmm. And we have a, programmers have a hard enough time controlling the parameters around those objective functions as it is. You know Tripp, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. He used the example of the uh, Mickey Mouse, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, yeah. filling the cauldron. So you would write the AI programs as fill the cauldron. Well then the cauldron keeps getting filled because more is better, right? And it overflows and you can lose control and can't stop it. So but you have to anticipate that. It's yeah. like, fill it, but don't overflow it, right? Yeah. And so that's, people talk about kind of the, sort of the black box around AI, because you don't really know how the program is fulfilling the function, how it, what, what it's come up with. Yep. So if you have autonomous AI, it sort of takes, pushes that out even further. Would you even know what the objective function is anymore? And you wouldn't. And as it is today, people are trying to build ways to even try to interpret what AI is learning. Right. Because right now it's opaque. You don't even, like you're, when you program, you can read the source code. When you have AI that's learned from just experiences and from data, you can't read it. You don't, know what, you don't know why it's doing what it's doing. So people are trying to say, how do we help AI explain itself in human language? Um, and that probably is a prerequisite to doing something like that. Uh, and furthermore, there's also people who think that AI has to be embodied in order for it to be truly conscious. Uh, and so and that embodied experience of humanity is kind of necessary for us to really learn and understand and have empathy. So they're trying to build that into AI. So there's a lot of hard questions and speculative questions along the way towards the, that goal or the idea of a fully autonomous artificial intelligence that can learn its own objective. Are there any theologians around now, current, alive, that are speaking into this or researching it, talking about it, writing about it? Well, Steve's our, uh, <laughs> he's, he's our collection development expert in this area. But I mean, there are, I mean, on one hand, there are a lot of resources to draw from, um, you know, from, from the Christian theological tradition around technology. Um, but specifically AI, um, I don't, I'm not aware of anybody that, that's really deeply engaging with this. Um, you know, more, more conversationally, perhaps, but. Um, and I guess they would have to be of a particular ilk to speak engage with the AI community, broad AI community. Yeah, so there's... Help them ask those questions. So there's, there's a couple of things I would say to that. One, Kevin Kelly is probably the writer you're looking for uh, because he comes from a Christian perspective, but he's kind of a futurist. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hide in somebody who kind of goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the futurists who believe in the singularity and that kind of thing, Kevin Kelly is the, the kind of more Christian perspective that talks about it. Um, and then secondly, I think there are movements towards that direction. So in Seattle, there's a group forming called Interfaith, or AI and Faith, and it's trying to be an interfaith movement to bring uh, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and people from other uh, religions as well to the table to be adding that voice, you know, multiple voices to that conversation around AI where all the experts and all the companies are already talking. So there are kind of overtures in that direction. I would say, though, that one of the struggles is that a lot of AI ethicists are doing a pretty good job <laughs> Uh, of calling out the problems. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's like, well, what do the Christians really have to add to that conversation? Oh, You're left in the dust. So but one of the strong ethicists, AI ethicists? Uh, I just heard one speak at UW recently. What was her name? Um, she's out in Kate Crawford. Kate Crawford yeah, from Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, and the Data and Society group is, is one of the key centers. Or No, she that's Dana Boyd's group. The, the group at NYU, NYU AI yeah. Now. That's, AI Now, that's, okay. That's uh, Crawford's group. Um, so, I mean, you, you, hit, you got to this earlier, but, but a lot of the discussions around AI is really how to just make it better. 
like so it's it's not bias it's not sort of sort of building on other social problems so making it more equitable making it more transparent more fair those questions are at a certain level about how to make the technology better there, there's another level of questions and concerns that I would say are philosophical and theological and that's the level I think where like this AI and faith group and other groups are starting to say you know there, there's a different this stuff's important, and but we'll solve these issues, you know, because this is making the technology better. But these are more about penultimate ends. What are the ultimate ends of the technology? What kind of people do we want to become? What kind of a world do we want to live in? And those are theological questions. Those are philosophical questions that are not going to be solved by just making the technology better. So it's that it's that higher level of discourse, I think, that you don't see a lot of going on right now. So, so there are some philosophers out there. Um, but not many theologians in that space. Um, I, I would also add to answer the question you asked me earlier, what's my, one of my biggest concerns? I think I am actually concerned that AI will be weaponized. It already kind of is moving in that direction. And, uh, and the difficulty with this is that you get to the geopolitical level, right? America and Europe or whatever might have its ethicists decide that we're going to put certain things out of bounds. But in China, um, the government might say, no, this is an interest of a national interest. We're going to go ahead and let it do all of this and collect all the data, and we'll have a superior AI because of that. And then we can then control the world, quote unquote, right? I'm just using that as a foil. It may not be China. It could be anybody. But you end up at that kind of global geopolitical level where one bad actor could weaponize AI to the point where they end up causing a lot of harm, taking a lot of power, um, and you're kind of throwing the whole existing status quo world order into disarray. Um, and so I don't really know the history, but I imagine that the conversation around nuclear weapons back in the day um, that resulted in mutually assured destruction and kind of a stable state for the geopolitical situation, probably something like that might need to happen in this AI space where we can kind of navigate to a point where you end up with a stable state because, um, yeah, there's just anybody can do it. Well, thank you, Chris, for spending some time with us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everybody. Yep.